Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. It's funny how it's only been two weeks since I've had a solo episode because it feels like it's been a month. Uh, That's probably what happens when we have a holiday week, right? And whether you're in the US or not, I'm sure you can all relate to having holiday weeks and how just everything gets topsy-turvy. And this week is kind of feeling like a weird catch-up week, but that's okay. Speaking of catching up, though, there's a couple of things I wanted to make sure that I touch base on uh, from previous episodes, especially the one on November 2nd, when I talked about mobile wallets, especially Apple Pay, and how and when liability for fraud is assigned. Uh, There's been some changes there or updates, really, that I learned about right after recording that episode that I wanted to be sure to pass on. Additionally, there's been some news, I guess it hasn't been a fully announced law yet, but uh, some news about Zelle and other peer-to-peer payment apps uh, on liability shifts. So see, there's like an interesting theme here, but you know, those of us in fraud, we need to know where the liability stands because whether we like it or not uh, in business, that's where we need to pay the most attention depending on you know who you work for and where the liability falls for fraud. And then lastly, there was some pretty big news last week announced about Binance. They received the largest fine in U.S. history uh, for not complying with AML compliance laws and uh, suspicious activity reports. And knowing that AML and fraud are related, they're close cousins or in a Venn diagram, there's definitely overlap. I thought it was important to cover that too. And then, you know, as like with all news stories, I'll share a little bit about what this probably or possibly means for you and your company and what you can do about this news. So like I said, on November 2nd's episode, I talked about Apple Pay and liability shifts. There's been some confusion around them and honestly, rightfully so. While this primarily impacts e-commerce companies, Banks do have liability within Apple Pay as well, usually in other ways, you know, when it's made for a purchase for e-commerce, then obviously it's the e-commerce merchants uh, liability typically, but it really depends, you know, as I said in that last episode, what type of card is funding that Apple Pay transaction. And, you know, as I mentioned in the episode, you know, the best information available that I had at the time said that liability for Apple Pay transactions that were funded by a Visa card in the US was on the merchant. Liability for Apple Pay transactions funded by MasterCard should be covered by the banks um, or covered by Apple. I'm actually not entirely sure how that's working, but I know that the liability is not on the merchant. But um, I since learned from a merchant that spoke directly with Apple and also Visa that there's a newer program between Visa and Apple Pay that may result in a liability shift, you know, on the issuer on some of the Visa transactions in Apple Pay. 
So it's really tricky. It's not going to be on all of them. And I'm still trying to figure out a couple of things, but um, I'll explain what I know. And then I feel like, you know, this is the kind of thing that uh, if it's important to you, if it applies to you, you'll want to talk with your acquirer uh, or your payment processor. Because as I think I've stated before, usually when it comes to chargebacks, uh, because Visa and MasterCard are open loop networks, uh, they communicate directly with issuers and acquirers. They don't directly communicate with merchants and card holders. There are some exceptions to that rule, especially over the last few years. I know that uh, Visa and MasterCard both have made some efforts to reach out to e-commerce merchants, especially. I don't know about cardholders necessarily, but primarily whenever there's new rule changes, they're sharing them with your processor and your processor is determining if and how those will be passed on to you. And uh, because everyone has a different processor that has different opinions on what is important to share or how they share information with their merchants often gets muddled and, and mixed up. And so um, I'm passing on this news that I did, was able to verify as much as I could. I found one sentence about it from a bulletin, uh, a visa bulletin uh, in December of 2022. <laughs> That's how much this has been talked about, but I sure think that this is something of interest. So definitely double check with your processor before doing anything, but wanted to just share this information as I think it's important and add some nuance to Apple Pay, especially as Apple Pay becomes one of the most frequently used alternative payment methods in the ecosystem right now. So it has to do with tokenization done between Apple Pay and Visa, and it'll essentially be like 3D Secure. So when a cardholder initiates a transaction um, and they're using a credential on file with a token that's provisioned with, with the device, right? So basically, if they're using a credential on file token um, provisioned from a device-based iOS Apple token, so basically what that's saying is there's a token attached to their device and Apple is saying, yes, this is this person's device. And the issuer knows, yep, okay, and we've got that attached, and this is their card. And they're able to create a token between those. Then uh, it's now reclassified with a transaction response of Electronic Commerce Indicator 05, which uh, probably sounds like TPS reports, but um, the shorter version of that is ECI05. And that response is under 3D rules. But from what I was told, it shouldn't be restricted to 3D secure transactions. That is something you will want to double check with your payment processor on. But what I was told, and again, it's kind of third hand information, I would love to talk to anyone at Apple or Visa about this, but I don't have uh, direct connections uh, to them. So I'm kind of piecing together what I can. That That's just because that is a response that is also used for 3D secure transactions, it doesn't necessarily mean that the merchant has to initiate 3D secure because I don't think you can on an Apple Pay transaction. So what the merchant was told anyways, is whenever they have a transaction response on an Apple Pay transaction that was funded by a Visa card, and if that transaction response includes ECI 05, that should there be fraud charged on that card or should that transaction be claimed as fraud, 
the merchant won't be liable. Again, was told to me third hand, but I do think it's worth looking into. And I did find a sentence on their website from December 2022 saying that this was going to happen. Um, they said it was going to happen April 15th, um, April 15th of 2023. But I was told is that it actually got pushed until October 15th of 2023. And this is just in the US and Canada. So like I said, I wanted to make sure that, um, you know, you have that information so you can talk with your payment processor to verify that. It's certainly worth looking into. And I want to always stay, you know, as informed as possible and keep you as informed as possible whenever anything new comes up. So think that that is relevant given how much fraud can be seen on these um, in some cases, but not all. And so this is just one uh, one way that can protect you, but also hopefully those transactions that are authenticated with a token, you know, it's showing that they're using the same device. So hopefully, in theory, those won't be fraud anyway, so you can pass them. The next news story I wanted to be sure to cover was around reimbursement of scams on Zelle. This is something that has been talked about quite a bit, uh, whether it's on LinkedIn or in various industry articles or even mainstream news articles, right? With so many victims you know, being targeted by victim-assisted scams and money mules and all that with peer-to-peer money transfer apps. So, you know, Zelle is obviously the one that is owned by most of the banks and that's why this one is, you know, so big. However, I would imagine that if... Uh, these laws are going to be passed down to Zelle. They, the other ones may see these similar rules uh, told to them as well, um, whether that's Venmo or Cash App, um, Apple Cash, etc. And we've seen this already in the UK, where there's already a blueprint for reimbursement of victims for scams. But in the US, it really depends on the bank, if the bank is willing to reimburse their customer or not. And unfortunately, what usually ends up happening is the customers that have been considered good customers at the bank will be reimbursed. But the customers that are considered not as good customers, which probably means that they don't have as much money or assets with that bank, the banks haven't had to reimburse them. It's been on the victims. And I can argue both sides of this argument quite well, actually. But I do think that overall... I side with this and I'll explain why in a few minutes, but I'm totally interested in hearing what you guys think too. If you you disagree, I'm always up for a well-informed, well-intentioned, good debate. But this article came out in the New York Times last week. At least it, it certainly made a splash on my LinkedIn homepage. And the title of the article was Banks Plan to Start Reimbursing Some Victims of Zelle Scams. A rule change planned for early next year would shift liability for some losses onto the banks, not their customers. So here's a few high-level pieces of information from that article. There are seven banks that own the Zelle Payments Network. Uh, and the Zelle Payments Network is run by Early Warning but it's really owned by Bank of America, Capital One, J.P. Morgan Chase, PNC, Truist, U.S. Bank, and Wells Fargo. And word came out that they're planning a major rule change to require compensation for customers falling victim to certain scams on the platform. The rule change expected to take effect early next year will reverse the current policy where customers are typically held responsible for losses on Zelle transactions that they initiated themselves even if they were tricked into sending money to scammers. Zelle's the nation's most popular peer-to-peer payments platform, 
and it processed 1.8 billion cash transfers totaling $490 billion last year. The planned rules would make banks assume liability for certain transactions where customers were deceived into sending money, requiring the recipient bank to return the funds to the victim's bank. The change applies specifically to scams where customers are misled, such as someone posing as a bank employee. It doesn't cover other common frauds like romance scams or the sale of false goods. The move is a response to growing pressure from lawmakers and regulators to better protect Zelle users from scams. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is also considering issuing guidance that could increase banks' liability for customer losses in fraudulent peer-to-peer transactions. So it could be said that they're trying to get ahead of it, and you know, rightfully so. Right? It's better in a lot of cases for private companies to enforce new rules uh, rather than have the government do it in, in their perspective. I'm not saying I have a perspective on that one way or another, but I know uh, that, you know, if if it seems like that's going to happen, sometimes it's better to beat them to the punch and say, you know what, we'll self-govern as long as, you know, that's what they actually do. So like I said, I'm curious about anyone that has a differing point of view, but I think even though we can say the consumers, you know, should have some responsibility to play in understanding scams and not falling victim to them. At the same time, we can't assume that they're that the average consumer is going to know all about the different scams and tactics that we do. We can't assume that they are staying up to date with those that they know the warning signs that because who's teaching them this, right? When I had a yell at bigger living on the podcast, we talked about, you know, how every company has a part to play in the scam life cycle. And especially, you know, marketplaces and social media and peer-to-peer money transfers, but there's others too that are used for scams and in some way, right? But if the liability doesn't fall on them, then they often, it depends on the company, but sometimes that's not where they're not going to pay as much attention to that, right? Unfortunately, but that's really what's happened at the banking level. And it really depends on the bank because I know that there are some banks that are very uh, diligent about trying to protect their customers and educate their customers about victim-assisted scams and especially on Zelle. My own credit union is really good at educating uh, their users on it. Whenever I open up the Zelle app, there's like several pop-ups of, you know, never give this information out. We will never call you and ask for this. Those types of things, um, they do their very best. And I also know, I often joke that I love my bank as a fraud professional, but sometimes as a user, it gets frustrating because uh, they are extra cautious when it comes to anything that could look like fraud. And that has put me in a couple of interesting spots uh, over the years where a transaction was canceled and I'm like, why? But I'd much rather them be cautious than not. So that's why I say, but not all banks are educating their consumers. And even if they are, consumers don't have access to the level of data that banks do. They don't have access to any information about the account that's receiving the funds. And I think that's a big part of this new rule and this new law is that They're putting some onus on the bank that is accepting the funds and saying, hey, you know, if that account was opened recently and if all of a sudden it's getting a lot of transfers from Zelle in the amount of $500 from multiple people, from multiple banks all throughout the country, you know, you know, if there's warning signs there. And so the onus should be on you. And I know within the UK, there's some rules around splitting it and there's all these different conditions. Uh, around those rules. And I feel like you kind of need like a 
a matrix or something like that to figure out, okay, who owns liability here, there, whatever. And with it being too complicated, well, then that gives, you know, one bank or the other the ability to kind of hide or say, oh, nope, wasn't my fault. Hopefully these will get straightened out. But it's, I think overall, it's a really good thing. Um, Now, does it sometimes concern me that if consumers have zero liability with fraud and scams that they're not going to do their due diligence? But are they doing their due diligence now? Do they even know that they have liability and that it's on them until it happens? Not usually. So I'm certainly not saying that consumers should get off scot-free, but I'm also not saying that, you know, I think looking at this pragmatically The banks are the ones that have the information. They're the ones that have all the data. And this technology exists, right? The technology exists to be able to uh, determine these things. And so I think that's part of it. And, you know, like I said, I think it will force banks and financial institutions, you know, to confront some challenges that have been manifesting for years. But without the liability, not all of them have been motivated to solve these problems. So hopefully this will motivate them. And hopefully if you are a fraud fighter working for uh, banks with Zelle, that this gives you an opportunity to provide some really good guidance to your institution and show them how lucky they are to have you and that you've thought this through. I think that this, you know, obviously won't be easy at first, but there will be ways to identify money mules and victim assisted scams. Um, The one that will be difficult is account opening fraud and synthetic fraud, right? I mean, that's unfortunately what ends up happening. And we see this in e-commerce just as much as banking too. And, you know, because it was in the news and because it was very public, Wells Fargo is a really good example of this, right? When banks or when executives of banks are incentivized by the number of new accounts that they get in a specific time period, whether it's a quarter or a fiscal year, it can often lead to wanting to look the other way or just not scrutinizing new accounts as much as you should or could because you want to make your quota, right? You want to hit your goal. Um, Within the Wells Fargo case, I mean, I think it was far beyond that where they were actually creating multiple accounts for, you know, one person and, and doing all these other things. But it just was a good example of when that is the benchmark, when that is what how someone is measured for their effectiveness or how a company is measured for their effectiveness or for their valuations, that that can cause some issues. And oftentimes what ends up happening is decisions being made to not scrutinize account setup and at the time of account creation, and instead moving it upstream or downstream really until transactions are done, until there's withdrawals or there's transfers or you know there's a big purchase. And that gets really tricky. So hopefully this will, you know, bring awareness to that and say, hey, we need, there's a lot of information at the account level that we can garner, that we can safely say this is a, you know, well-intentioned new customer, or this is probably someone with bad intentions that we don't want on our platform at all. And hopefully those are conversations that can be had. Hopefully Uh, executives and boards will be open to looking at new ways. Because I think if that doesn't happen, then it's just going to be this continual game of whack-a-mole where you're trying to stop the fraud after it's been created, after they're within your network. It's kind of like stopping a bank robber after they're within the bank. It's much easier to keep them outside the bank and just not even let them in. I think the most important thing, you know, to 
note, and I just mentioned it a few minutes ago, is the technology does exist to know when screen share is on, right? I just mentioned it with Matt Vega on Tuesday's episode. That's something that really blew me away with the sardine demo uh, that they did for fraudology listeners a couple weeks ago, where they're able to know when a victim or a potential victim's screen share is on, when they're sharing their screen and they're logging into their bank, you know, when someone else is entering the password, maybe someone stole the device and they're entering the password, but it's not, the device isn't held the right way, or the password isn't typed the same way with behavior biometrics, you know, when a cell phone is emulated or has been SIM swapped lately, that type of technology exists. And so because it exists, I really hope to see more banks lean into that. And yeah, it's going to mean a bigger investment, but it's going to be that investment is going to be a heck of a lot less than what is stolen from you. I mean, I just keep coming back to this concept of the fact that as fraud fighters, we have to ask for budget. And oftentimes, our budget asks are not granted, or they're pushed back on. And oftentimes too, that budget that we're asking for is significantly less than what the fraudsters are just going to steal from your company or your bank. And I don't know how to necessarily get that across to companies or leadership, but it's just something that I keep thinking about where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It's something my grandmother used to always say, and I never really truly understood what it meant until I was in fraud. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. So, you know, a couple thousand dollars spent on fraud prevention is worth saving several million dollars in the fraud that you're going to lose. If you're a regular listener of Fraudology, you've heard me talk about SPEC. Not only does their no-code platform let you instantly assemble the fraud solutions that you need to stay ahead of bad actors, but SPEC's long list of integrations is always growing, empowering you to orchestrate your data to create customized customer journeys. SPEC lets you stay ahead of fraud while enabling great customer experiences for your legitimate users. Request your personalized demo of Specs Trust Cloud today at specprotected.com. That's www.specprotected.com. Or you can visit their website by clicking the link in today's show notes. So for fraud teams and leaders within banking, you know, with Zelle and you're you know, wondering what to do, I think... My best advice would be if you don't have your list of recommendations with technology and process, you know, process improvements that will help you know, improve the quality of users versus the quantity and will reduce your financial institution's amount of exposure. Do that now, you know, create a, a plan, maybe create a good, better, best plan. Um, sometimes as a consultant, I have to do that where, hey, this is what I would really recommend. But I understand that because of engineering restrictions or budget or whatever that is, that may not be possible. Here's kind of the middle ground. And then here's what at the very least you should do. And, you know, really focus on money mules and assistance, victim assisted scams. Hopefully you have the data that even if you're not having to, or even if you're not paying back your victims now, hopefully you have the data of how much money has been lost by your victims to these scams and being able to show your company, well, we can keep having to pay this. Well, not keep having to pay, I guess in a lot of cases they haven't paid, right? But we're either going to have to start paying all of this back and it's going to continue to grow because as other banks invest in stopping these fraud tactics, they're going to go to those who have not or we can start to invest in these and really look at what technology and what processes do we need to change at a holistic level to be able to help our, our 
customers and our clients our users not fall victim to these things because oftentimes they're blaming you anyway, right? They're saying, well, you should have told me, you should have known, you have the data, you had the information, you know what fraud looks like. I don't. So in this case, they're blaming you anyway. So you might as well you know, work to protect them. And it's a better conversation to say, hey, we said no to that transaction because we were afraid that you were being scammed. Then I'm sorry, you're not getting your money back and you've been scammed. So, um, you know, having those conversations, and I know a lot of banks have already been having those conversations internally, knowing that this was probably coming sooner rather than later, but it's really good to have that information now. And if you haven't been asked about it, I think it's a good thing to, you know, be able to reach out to leadership and say, Hey, I'm not sure if you saw this New York times article, but you know, I have some thoughts on how we can prepare for this. Let me know when you're ready to talk about it. And I will absolutely include the New York Times article or a link to it in the show notes for today if you need that uh, to help with those conversations. So now we're going from talking about rules and and laws that are coming up to protect people um, and moving on to what can happen when a company does not follow rules that already exist. And that is around Binance. So Binance is, I think, the world's largest crypto exchange. FTX was one as well. And I remember when FTX, all the news came out about FTX and that it was, you know, really fraudulent and, and all of that around the founder, Sam Bankman Freed, and how that just kind of crumbled. There were some rumblings, you know, what about Binance? Are they going to be able to stay open as well? And I would imagine that there were already investigations happening at the Justice Department and at FinCEN on Binance, just knowing what I know now and what has come out of uh, what was going on there. But it's possible that the collapse of FTX kind of put a little jet fuel in that investigation into Binance, uh, knowing that it can have some really big effects if all of a sudden the crypto exchange goes down. So I also think that this is just a really good example in why AML and SARS are important. Uh, but that's you know just another example. So uh, just to give a few highlights of that story, uh, one headline was Binance and CEO plead guilty to federal charges in $4 billion resolution. So Binance Holdings Limited, the operator of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, Binance.com, has pled guilty and agreed to pay over $4 billion to resolve a Justice Department investigation into violations related to the Bank Secrecy Act, the BSA. Failure to register as a money transmitting business and the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Binance's founder and CEO, and I'm going to try to say his name right uh, or something close, uh, Ching Peng Xiao, a Canadian national, also pled guilty to failing to maintain an effective anti-money laundering or AML program and has resigned as CEO. The guilty plea is part of coordinated resolutions with the Department of Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN and the Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, and also the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC. Lots of letters. The resolution includes a financial penalty of $4.3 billion, a forfeiture of $2.5 billion, a criminal fine of $1.8 billion, and the agreement to retain an independent compliance monitor for three years. The plea agreement acknowledges Binance's prioritization of growth and profits, 
over compliance with U.S. law, failure to implement effective AML controls, and intentional avoidance of U.S. sanctions laws. Zhao admitted understanding Binance's service to U.S. users, the necessity to register with FinCEN, and the requirement for an effective AML program. So he acknowledged that he knew that those were important, he just didn't think that they were important for his company because he was prioritizing profits. Back to reading part of this article. The department credited partial cooperation from Binance in its investigation, but noted delays in producing relevant evidence. The total criminal penalty reflects a 20% reduction off the bottom of the applicable U.S. sentencing guidelines fine range. The case involves violations that allowed money to flow to terrorists, cyber criminals, and child abusers through Binance's platform, threatening the U.S. financial system and national security. The Internal Revenue Service criminal investigation is investigating the case and the prosecution involves various units, including Bank Integrity Unit, National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team, the Counterintelligence and Export Control Section, and the National Security Cyber Section. I didn't even know that the U.S. had that many entities around cyber and crypto, but I'm glad to see it. I think they're fairly new. So that's kind of the news part of it. Uh, Frank McKenna of Frank on Fraud, we all know I am a big fan of his blog, and I think a lot of you are too. I wrote a really good article around this, and so I'm going to read parts of it because um, he dove into and really read a lot of the complaint and a lot of the legal documentation and pulled out some very interesting parts that I think you all will find fascinating. I certainly did. Frank titled this article, Greedy Criminals, Binance Never Filed a Single SAR Ever, which that is crazy to believe, right? Um, For any company that has to fill out suspicious activity reports and submit them to FinCEN, I think it's really hard to believe that this company was around for you know, several years and never filed a single SAR. All right. So here's how Frank starts the, ep- the his, not his episode, his article. It's hard to believe that Binance is still in business. Shang Pen Zhao, the founder, uh, started the company in 2017, and he managed to stockpile so much money in the last five years that he is able to pay the largest single fine in U.S. history, over $4 billion. By all accounts, Binance made over $20 billion a year in annual revenue, enriching Zhao, who is now worth over $10 billion. The $4 billion fine might sound large, but the company will live on. Uh, he only, I think it's interesting to note that the CEO only has to pay $50 million himself, uh, which is only 5% of his wealth. So while they definitely did something wrong and they're being punished for it, he and his company will still have quite a bit of money. So I think that's interesting to be aware of. They're not completely getting shut down, although I do know that part of the penalty is complete exit from the U.S. Um, over the next five years, uh, while they're also having a multifaceted monitorship by FinCEN. So they're going to have FinCEN all up in their business. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, actually, I'm, I remember seeing a couple of compliance rules uh, for Binance over the last few months. So I wouldn't be surprised if there will be a few more open uh, in the next few months, just a guess. So because the U.S. went after Binance this week, details have emerged. Um, And as part of the settlement, the government announced a list of crimes and illegal activity conducted by the company over the last four years. Here are six horrible things we learned about Binance this week. These were some of the more horrible things we learned about Binance. And this is me reading straight from Frank's article, which I will also include in the show notes. 
Crime number one, they never filed a SAR, ever. Binance was required to report suspicious transactions to FinCEN through suspicious activity reports, or SARs, but they never did. Binance's former chief compliance officer told personnel that the CEO's policy was to not report such activity, and Binance never filed a single SAR with FinCEN. But it's not like they didn't have suspicious activity, that wasn't the case at all. So usually what happens is whenever there's suspicious activity, you know, over a certain amount or, you know, you're seeing money look like it's being laundered through different accounts, that's when you're supposed to report it to FinCEN so that they can, you know, in theory, I know there's a lot that are reported, but they can investigate those and look at accounts that are probably being used for much bigger crimes. It says that, you know, Binance should have reported well over 100,000 SARS, but they didn't report a single one. So I, I mean, this guy was the chief compliance officer. I am very curious to know if he has gotten another job yet because it's, that is in direct conflict with what anyone in AML and compliance uh, would ever do. So the second crime, the government estimated they should have filed 100,000 or more SARS. So after an investigation, it was revealed that Binance neglected to report over 100,000 SARS for criminal events and potential money laundering. According to FinCEN, Binance willfully failed to report well over 100,000 suspicious transactions that it processed as a result of its deficient controls, including transactions involving terrorist organizations, ransomware, child sexual exploitation material, fraud, and scams. They financed some of the most evil terrorist groups in the world. This is number three. Binance worked with some of the worst of the worst. The government says that Binance failed to report to FinCEN transactions associated with terrorist groups, including Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, uh, Hamas, and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or PIJ. So you might be asking, well, how would they know that these are connected? Well, if you're in fraud, you know how they know. I think that's all I'm going to say. There are definitely ways to identify any connected scams and schemes to cybercrime, especially when you are dealing with money. And that is exactly why these rules exist. Any company that allows money transfers from one to another has to comply with AML and SARS. Even a lot of marketplaces now where they're paying sellers money, well, they're paying out money. So therefore, they're often considered money transfers and they have to have an AML compliance. Um, Not all marketplaces, but certainly several. So the fact that this cryptocurrency exchange never, you know, looked into suspicious transactions at all, and they just really looked looked the other way and probably knew that there were a lot of accounts that were connected to some really, you know, scary people. But if you're not even looking, if you're not even, you know, and obviously these people are going to realize it too, right? Because they can't do business at other crypto exchanges, but they can do business at this one. So they'll probably double down and use it even more, which is another reason why the CEO may not have wanted, you know, anyone to have any compliance or, you know, file SARS or, you know, object to working with any, you know, particular groups or people because they knew that they would lose money, they would lose customers, and they prioritize profits over safety. And that's really why they got in this much trouble. So number four, and I think a lot of us, you know, I definitely wondered about this for a while. So I'll um, talk about that more in a minute. But number four is that they took money from ransomware criminals. Binance customers also included prolific ransomware groups, and the evidence against them was damning. Despite being one of the largest receivers of ransomware proceeds and transacting in millions of dollars of ransomware proceeds, 
from attacks involving at least 24 different strands of ransomware. Binance failed to report these transactions. So, you know, when ransomware has occurred and, you know, people have had to pay using crypto, I've often wondered, well, wouldn't the exchange notice that? Wouldn't they be able to identify that this is what's happening? Or at least when the investigations are happening afterwards and they're tracing the crypto, you can find which exchanges use. And if that exchange isn't reporting that, if they aren't investigating or if they aren't doing proper know your customer or know, you know, know your business, so KYC or KYB processes, well, then you would think they'd get in trouble. Like there are rules and laws for a reason. And I'm not saying that all of them are great, but in this case, and especially when it comes to cybercrime and crypto and, you know, peer to peer money laundering and all of that, it's really not as regulated as it could be, or maybe even as it should be because it's growing faster than regulations can happen. And so the fact that, you know, there are any regulations at all, they're important and they need to be followed. And there's reasons for that. And having your company associated with terrorism and crypto and really honestly being responsible for ransomware happening, because if ransomware criminals couldn't get the money out that was transferred to them, well, then they wouldn't do the crime, right? They wouldn't keep doing ransomware. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't pay off for them. But as long as they could continue to use Binance and they knew that Binance wasn't doing anything, Binance wasn't catching them or stopping them or identifying it, well, then they're going to keep doing it. So really, Binance helped perpetrate a lot of these crimes. And that's why they were fined so much. Uh, Frank also has a call out that Samuel Lim, the former chief compliance officer, instructed his team to take no action against ransomware perps as the crypto addresses were associated with a high value client. So, you know, yeah, it's probably ransomware, but it's associated with a high value client. Well, of course it is because these guys are stealing so much money in ransomware. That's why they're considered a high value client. Sorry, I get a little worked up sometimes. <laughs> Don't we all know our sense of justice just like gets fired up? I also just realized that by saying uh, the chief compliance officer's name that there's probably a really good percentage of you that are now looking him up on LinkedIn. <laughs> Do I know us or do I know us? Uh, when an analyst wanted to report the transactions, Binance's former chief compliance officer instructed his teams to take no action as the addresses were associated with a high value client who had indirect exposure to a dark net market. So he knew that, you know, they were exposed to dark net market and he knew that he was high value. Well, he, again, he's high value because he's committing crimes and stealing from people. And, you know, how many ransomwares have attacked, you know, hospitals and all of the ripple effects that can happen from that. It's just... I don't know how it can't be infuriating. Uh, crime number five, they never reported child sexual abuse materials. Binance never reported transactions with websites devoted to selling child sexual abuse materials, including a website called Dark Scandals. Dark Scandals was a site hosted on both the Darknet and Clearnet that featured videos and depictions of child pornography. There are a lot of laws around that. Uh, it is definitely the bank's responsibility or the you know financial institution or the you know money transferring company to be aware of who they're transacting with. That is what know your customer means. And you know the fact that these things were able to be found out and you know, were then talked about in these legal documents and exposed. Um, says that they were, I mean, if a third party is able to easily connect the dots and identify uh, who was doing these transactions, then Binance certainly had enough information to be able to know who was doing them too. They also never reported dark web sales of drugs and counterfeiting. Despite sending and receiving virtual asset proceeds from large scale hacks, 
account takeovers, and dark net markets dealing with illegal narcotics, counterfeit, and fraud-related goods and services, as well as other illegal contraband, Binance never reported any such transactions. Again, if the Department of Justice could identify this, just looking at another company's data, that company could also identify it too. I guess I don't even know what the point of having a chief compliance officer is if you don't file SARS and you don't look at who you're doing business with. And that does bring us down to KYC. Um, There were virtually zero KYC checks being done. In fact, from July 2017 through at least August 2021, customers were permitted to open accounts and conduct transactions with only an email address. Binance performed no due diligence on such accounts. Wow, that blows my mind. So there's obviously more to come because now the SEC is coming after Binance next. And then also in that article um, that I read earlier, the IRS is also looking into them. And I have to wonder if, you know, and this is all US focused, but I have to wonder if other countries are now looking into them as well. Because if they didn't file any of these, you know, forms with the US, I know that, you know, the UK and countries in Europe and other areas require similar actions. So I can't help but wonder if they're going to be fined in other countries too. And the fact that they admitted guilt here, if that will expedite it in other countries, I don't know. I'm just kind of wondering out loud. But Frank sums it up that if Binance thinks they are out of the woods, they are mistaken. The SEC was notably absent from the settlement and their action could hurt Binance even more. In the hours after the $4 billion settlement was announced, customers withdrew over a billion dollars in assets from the company, about 25% of the total in the exchange. All this, and not to mention they are going to be under intense scrutiny for the next five years. Things don't look great for Binance is how he ends that. And then Frank also includes the whole consent order uh, from FinCEN. It's several pages long, so but that is at the bottom of his article. I'm just looking here. It looks like it is 91 pages long. So, you know, if you have some free time, I uh, can read that. But thanks to Frank for highlighting some of those things uh, without us having to read all 91 pages. I appreciate that. I'm sure you do too. But the thing that you can really learn from this, and this is, you know, what I wanted to highlight too, is it's important to know, you know, what was happening and to realize that, you know, this company was enabling all of that. And hopefully with a lot more scrutiny, those gaps and holes will be filled and, you know, there will be less losses due to ransomware and other things. But I think it's also really important to highlight just how important the rules are. And just because a company isn't following them for a while doesn't mean that there's not going to be some pretty big repercussions. And if you're in a situation where, you know, someone in your company says, well, why do we have to do that? Or, you know, is this important? Uh, You can certainly you know, forward them this article or share this information with them and say, well, you know, the Department of Justice in the US is really looking and scrutinizing companies for not doing these things, um, for not doing them well, for not doing them right. I mean, obviously, Binance didn't file a single one. So that made it very obvious. But even if, you know, your company isn't filing them for some things, right, they all of those things can be found out, right? The truth can always be found out by facts. And there's always a trail. So I think it's important to, you know, remind others within the company that, yeah, this will probably get in the way of us growing our bottom line. But A, do we want to be, you know, facilitating these types of things? And B, it could really come back to bite us in the end. And so that's, I think, one of the many lessons that can be learned from this. 
But I think also, I mean, I think back to just two years ago, right? When Binance and FTX and all these other big crypto, and remember when NFTs were big and, um, you know, I mean, I had when Matt worked for when Matt Vega, who was my guest on Tuesday, when he worked for um, full time, I know he still is working with Candy Digital and their NFTs, you know, the thought was that this was going to be the next big thing. And I know that NFTs still are, you know, popular, but certainly not the way they were back then. And so I think, you know, when you think about all the celebrities that endorsed different crypto exchanges, when you think about just how big it was for a while, it was really built on irresponsibility. And now we're seeing the cracks and we're seeing what was really going on. And sometimes when a company grows so fast, you can't grow the controls with them. But other times there are, you know, so sometimes that just kind of happens and you have to catch up as quickly as you can. But in other cases, the reason why a company gets so big so fast is because they are cutting corners and they aren't following the rules. And like I said, when it comes to these rules anyway, I think they you know, are important. There are reasons for them, like trying to not have terrorists and, you know, child predators and other, you know, really serious crimes benefit from cyber fraud and cyber crime and be able to launder money and be able to, you know, make money off of their crimes. So that is it for me. It was a full episode of, you know, potpourri of things from Apple Pay to Zelle to Binance, but uh, this week has been really fascinating for fraud news, and I definitely wanted to share it with you all, and I appreciate you listening. I look forward to speaking with you more next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.